So hello, welcome. I'm Rob Doubleday from the Centre for Science and Policy and this is the second episode in our series on climate change resilience. I'm joined by my friend and colleague Emily So, Professor of Architectural Engineering, who's leading these series of questions over four episodes about climate change, resilience, adaptation, and really what progress has been made at and since the COP26 meeting in Glasgow at the end of last year. Thanks, Rob. Pleasure to be here presenting the series, which is brought to you in partnership with the research project Expertise Under Pressure, part of the Centre for the Humanities and Social Change at the University of Cambridge. In this episode, we're really pleased to be joined by Andrew Coburn and Rowan Douglas to talk about financing of climate change resilience and, and the broader picture of what Glasgow meeting means for the kinds of discussions that are needed to make progress. Um, Andrew Coburn is the Chief Scientist at the Centre for Risk Studies at the University of Cambridge and also Chief Executive of Resilience. And Rowan Douglas, who's joining us, is Head of the Climate Resilience Hub at the consulting firm Willis Towers Watson. Emily. Thank you, Rob. Maybe I can kick off with the first question really regarding COP and getting your reflections on COP26. How does it differ from previous conferences and what are your views on how it's progressed the resilience agenda. I'll start with you, Rowan. Well, thanks so much, Emily. And it, it's great to be uh, on this series. I, I was lucky enough to be up at uh, Glasgow for the uh, the full two weeks, involved in quite a bit of the preparation. And I know that Glasgow got you know slightly mixed reports, but certainly when it came to the both the resilience side and the engagement of the private sector, finance, and other sort of non-state actors. I think most of us who were there thought it was really quite a breakthrough, actually. I think for for three reasons related to to this subject, beyond the the wider sort of net zero agenda. First is, I think I've been to COPS since, I think, 2014. And this was, without doubt, the first COP where resilience and adaptation wasn't just tolerated, it was actively seen as a, a key part of the agenda and not something that was being focused on at the detriment of the of the net zero agenda and and that's taken a while to d- develop i would say in the in the main zeitgeist of 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 the sort of conference and that was really very exciting i suppose the second general observation and maybe very appropriate in the home of adam smith or at least where he was professor in glasgow in that this was i think glasgow will be seen as where the economics and finance of climate became mainstream, where Paris was really about politics and governments. And there was no doubt, partly through the work of Mark Carney and many others, including financial regulators who've been focusing on this for the last three or four years, absolutely clear that climate risk, uh, broadly defined, is now a key focus for integration into the mainstream financial system. And that really, the invisible hand of economics needs to be Adam Smith's invisible hand needs to be retrained to be sort of updated. And just the presence of, you know, despite the, tra- the, the challenges of getting to Glasgow, what was really notable was the, the extent of business and finance, uh, as well as public finance, uh, being there, you know, very strongly. So, and, and since then, in London, there's been probably one of the, the main sort of follow-on conferences from it, the, the net zero 
Finance Summit at the City of London. We had uh, Mark Carney back over, I think John Morton, the US Treasury Czar, and, and quite a cast really to drive forward um, the agenda. So I, I would say many of us are really quite encouraged by what happened in, in Glasgow, much to do, but certainly I think an inflection point in certainly the resilience and adaptation and related finance side. That's great to hear. And Andrew, would you agree with that assessment of, of COP26? Yes, I, I think um, I was uh, privileged to be there for the first time this time around. And I certainly agree that the impact of economics was certainly front and centre, exactly as, as, as Rowan uh, said. I, I was slightly disappointed, I think, in the representation of businesses uh, around the table. It was certainly well outnumbered by the number of NGOs and, and uh, policy makers. And you know, I think a lot of the action that's needed, it needs to involve uh, corporates and, and large companies. There's still that sort of tension between the policymakers sort of telling them what to do and their own sort of self-interest. And I think that's a, a theme that we should sort of pick at a little bit uh, on today's sort of call, really, is sort of the tension between the policymakers. But it was, it was very encouraging. I thought it was a huge positivism. My main observation is that it's, it's still very piecemeal. Each of the arrangements, like the Methane Act or the, or the Agricultural Agreement, is a, is a sort of a voluntary gathering of each of the different... Each country has an option to, to which of the treaties it signs up to. And as a result, we've got very sort of patchwork set of lots of different agreements going on in different spheres. And of course, I think the hope when we were going through all the COP series was that would there be a much more unified approach. So I think... I think the countries that are really buying into it are going faster and faster, and the countries that are sort of dragging their feet are slowing down. So I, I think we're getting a very sort of more, more polarised world, I think, and that makes it more complicated for people to sort of navigate. If you're, if you're a global sort of multi, multinational, you've got to negotiate a lot of different jurisdictions running at different sort of speeds, and that, and that makes life complicated. And, of course, there's always been this sort of thing, will the transition be orderly or disorderly? And I think uh, it's looking a bit more on the disorderly end of the spectrum. But uh, no, I thought it's re really good impetus and obviously setting up. We're now going to move sort of annual COPs. Thing. I think that's extremely encouraging. Thank you, Andrew. One thing I picked up one Rome, when you were describing that the experience is the integration side, that, that the resilience is now fully integrated as part of the business strategy and things that are to think about in the future, not something that is just tagged on. Can you tell us a bit more about how, in particular, the in insurance industry has taken this on board? And really, the key question is, how has that changed in the last year or so in terms of their strategy and the way they think about resilience? Yeah, I, unfortunately, Emily, I wouldn't say resilience and adaptation is fully integrated yet, but it's certainly <laughs> the, the door was open in a way that perhaps it, it hadn't been before. And, uh, you know, even in some of the, you know, main campaign around obviously the race to, to net zero led by the, the climate champions but we have uh, in parallel the race to resilience and um, so certainly I would just say that resilience adaptation was no longer the forgotten or slightly less welcome side of the of, of the family so to speak so which was very positive and certainly the insurance sector were there in you know in some force in fact through various initiatives that the industry has, has developed, often in partnership with the, the UN and other international institutions, groups like the Insurance Development Forum, uh, UNEP-related groups, uh, ClimateWise, based at the University of Cambridge, of course, 
there's been quite a bit of collaboration over the years, actually, and uh, in a number of areas. So, so the first, I would, I would say there's probably two or three main groups. The first is around actually understanding risk, climate risk, physical risk, and its related modelling. And as you know, Emily, this is quite challenging. And, and uh, obviously, Andrew's a great expert too. But when we talk about net zero, it's really quite straightforward, at least in terms of metrics, it's tons of carbon. And we've had that metric, um, you know, since 1992 or before that, when COP started. And a, a ton of carbon released uh, here in Britain, where we're speaking from today, is the same as a ton of carbon uh, released anywhere else. And you have a kind of a currency for developing understanding and targets. As many realize, actually, resilience is, is, is rather more complicated to actually measure resilience. Often it's the combination for those of us in the, in the sector of sort of engineering metrics, actuarial science and human and physical geography. But of course, resilience matters very much where it is and against what type of hazard and key thresholds. And I think for um, the, the wider community, that's been really difficult. It's quite difficult to say what is the, the annual average physical climate risk that different countries or regions or cities face now and, and into the future. So what's been quite exciting is, I think, a recognition that broadly defined insurance-related thinking around physical climate risks and natural hazards, which has been developed with your help, Emily, and, and Andrews and many others at the university over the last 30 years, is probably going to be, if you like, the bedrock of how the wider financial system uh, and indeed wider business and public sectors uh, understand uh, climate risk also, of course, with a, with a forward gear. And there was a, a number of exciting initiatives announced at, uh, in Glasgow. One, the Global Resilience Index uh, with a, a set of partners. I, I think with could provide that sort of key reference point. So certainly an exciting agenda on risk modeling. Without that, you know, it's arm waving. You know, what gets measured gets managed. I suppose the other area is a recognition that risk sharing through insurance is not just a private sector product. Actually, insurance broadly defined is, a, is an institution. And we have, if we can share risks sustainably at local and global scales, it, it does provide that key governance mechanism that's allowed us to confront other big risks in the past, whether it was urban fire and conflagration in the 19th century, whether it was the big social upheavals we just we had in the sort of 1930s and 19 uh, sort of 50s led to you know development of social insurance and the welfare state and i think there's a a growing recognition that risk sharing in sustainable risk pools across public and private sectors will be an absolutely essential part of both a resilient future for communities but also a, a just transition and then the final observation, and obviously a big challenge, uh, the, the, the loss and damage debate, which has been obviously developing over many years, and often stumbles on the issue of, well, how will the global north, to some degree, compensate the global south for emissions? And obviously that leads to all sorts of challenges. And, and I think there's a growing sentiment that actually, if we could find a way of sharing the risk through insurance mechanisms between countries, Obviously, those who have the greater ability to contribute will probably pay relatively more, but that could be a wonderful mechanism. And uh, the G7 summits coming up, I think, are going to focus on this with the help of the German government. 
could actually allow us to get to a place where the world supports each other, including the, the poorest, the most vulnerable, in the right way, but without having to confront, uh, how can I put it, difficult uh, issues of history and, and legacy. So very exciting how the philosophy is changing about the role of finance as a sort of a, a steward of this just resilient transition. So uh, but those are some of my takeaways from Glasgow and, and a lot of emphasis. And you'll see from the Marrakesh partnership sort of documents to actually move from podium to action between now and uh, Sharm el-Sheikh. So we're, and we're exactly halfway there, aren't we now? It's six months to go. So action stations. You know, going back to what you're saying about risk modeling and the challenges of, of founding the me- right metrics, even to, to see what things have changed in the resilience side, you know, even when you have made progress, how do you measure? How do you actually applaud mm. the people and the countries that have done well without it being impounded by a, some kind of natural hazard disaster to really be able to judge that improvement? And I guess this leads me nicely to you, Andrew, about modeling and and the appetite for looking at different strategies and businesses for adaptation of the, of their assets and their and the way of business uh, is run. Yes, yes, very much so. Um, so you know, my my main experience over the past couple of years working through as a company resilience, uh, working with large corporates, uh, has been that these are we're working with large organisations that are major consumers of energy to produce. The products and services for for their customers, and they're they're obviously in working within this landscape. And they're l- large companies like Nestle and Reckitt, who produce a lot of consumer goods. Organisations like Maersk, who have major sort of shipping operations, and obviously th- these are big drivers of the overall economy that uh, that we're talking about in, in this in this overall context. And I think they are all grappling with the new landscape. So, and in this new landscape, the costs of these of fossil fuels particularly is rising and consumers are sort of voting with their wallets. So and these these companies are reacting to those those external forces They're They're studying how is the climate going to change? How might their patterns of raw materials uh, change significantly? And they themselves are, are adapting and sort of optimizing their businesses for this new reality. So there is quite a lot of sort of trying to make sense of this, trying to forecast out, trying to understand what the regulators are trying to achieve and kind of working with them. And I think their own self-interests can be relied upon to manage a, a new economy. I call this ethical capitalism. It's got a new sort of, it's not just the dollars, it's actually how do you become um, stewards of the environment as well as an as an important part of running your business and this requires a lot of sort of data and analysis and and forward thinking and i think what is happening is there's a change all the way down the sort of financing food chain from the companies themselves and looking for their investors they get a lot you know most of their investment comes from institutional investors and they have you know tax incentives and various other things to, to play with that. But mainly the, in, the investors themselves are looking to get returns from their green investment. They're looking for, will the growth opportunities be for the future? I think that's driving a lot of the actual response, what I would call the adaptation for individual businesses. They're putting some quite serious kind of budgets behind this transformation process that, you know, some of the big innovating companies. So they're they're literally spending billions of dollars of their own resources on 
changing the nature of their supply chains, managing the, the different stru structure of their businesses, investing in lower emission operations and sort of lower, you know, things that consume less energy, but also greener energy. And those things don't, don't come cheaply. You have to buy new technology and, you know, reorient your business. And that, that requires a lot of kind of effort. So uh, there is quite a lot of change going on at the moment uh, around how do you finance this? Because you're basically borrowing from the future in order to finance today's change. And that's quite a sort of complex equation. What is the return on investment in, 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 their, in their calculus to, to make that happen? And, and where all those flows of capital are coming from, the insurance industry being a very important part of that is exactly you know, the, the dialogue that, that's currently kind of going on. There is a new, I'm going to call it the low carbon economy, coming a little clearer in vision. And the winners in that new economy will be the people who really planned and thought and invested about how to change, transform their business for that, for that new, new reality, I think. I guess a question for both of you, where is the innovation in this? You know, is it to provide solutions? As, as Rowan said, you know, the, the, the focus now really is on action. It's not, we're aware of this now. We're aware of the need for building in resilience. We're, we're aware of needing to get to net zero. But how do we get to the solutions? Where is the innovation in the industry, do you think? And maybe I can go back to you, Rowan, first, and then Andrew. Well, yes, yeah, so I'm going to perhaps bring up something that may sound a bit negative in terms of where the innovation lies, but it's certainly where I think the impact is going to be. And uh, Andrew was, was quite right to sort of point to some of the investment uh, opportunities in the green and, and by extension sort of resilient economy. I was always struck by the fact that you know, when I entered the reinsurance industry 30 years ago, it's terrible when you can say that about your career, 30 years ago, 1992, entered Lloyd's of London, the same month that Hurricane Andrew struck the east coast of the US. And it was kind of a, it was a final punctuation mark on that terrible set of losses. The industry was in complete disarray globally. And over the next 20 years, with the help of actually analytics and uh, smart investment by in backers of companies as well as regulation it moved from relative ruin to relative resilience by essentially stress testing insurance systems not for what had happened but what could happen now and, and you were at the heart of that and I must say the word sustainable the word green the words CSR was never mentioned it was simply about properly accounting for risk and once risk of, if you like, uncertain extremes was properly accounted for, the additional costs of, frankly, additional aspects of safety or uh, the additional capital required was properly reflected in the economic returns. And so the real innovation we need is to make sure that, certainly in the context of this conversation, that physical climate risks and related natural hazards now because those risks are there now and many people haven't experienced what could happen now, but also obviously how those will progress into the future. That is going to be the innovation. And once that happens, the new requirements that we're seeing now around financial regulation and financial stability, as well as legal duties of care. So an insurance company now has to show resilience you know, at, at extreme levels, unlike it they ever had before, They're like engineers. 
Uh, and now they're having to show that they'll have that resilience, not just this year and next year, but actually in 20 years time and 30 years time. But actually, should not a mayor of a city or uh, a utility provider also have legal duties to be resilient to foreseeable natural hazards and climate change, which can now be modelled to, you know, frankly, much more confidence than most other risks that we face in, in business and, uh, and, and public policy. So for me, the, the revolution is actually one of thought and ideation. And once these techniques, which aren't rocket science, and they're, they're, they exist, they just need to be propagated more widely. Once we have that transformation, that actually we can incorporate this within our core uh, legal and, and financial and wider policy landscape, then actually that will provide the motor and the incentive for uh, capital to flow in the right direction, but also to, to stimulate exactly the sort of innovation and, and smart new industries and thinking that, that Andrew was uh, speaking about. But I'm, I, my fear is until we flick that switch, and I've seen how powerful it can be more widely, I, I think we'll lack the fundamental fuel to get where we need to as fast as we need to. And that's why this podcast at the center of science and policy is so key because ultimately it is about policy mm. and science and governance coming together. Yeah. I guess the, well, can we use the private sector, Andrew, to try and stimulate some of these yeah. conversations and, and get the, the, the people who invest in resilience and, and strategize about this to show us the way to do this and, and build it into the regulations? Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I totally agree with Rowan's, uh, this concept really of the power of frameworks, the thoughts and the ideation, as you mentioned, that this is, you need that overall, you know, thinking to create the incentives for the capital flows and that innovation. And that, you know, that, that's exactly right. We, we, you know, there's a lot of innovation kind of going on at the moment. Uh, you know, there's all sorts of incentives being flown through and there's a lot of technology development going on in sort of renewable power. There's batteries and storage technologies that are needed. There's a whole sort of array of then how do you push that around the world in new types of grids and trying to create new ships and aircraft that can operate. You know, that, that, that world is kind of going on. But ultimately, it's, it's driven by, again, incentives and what the innovators and the people who are funding those think is going to be the ultimate return. And what does that new kind of economy look like and i think some of the some of the quite interesting innovations that that i'm seeing are much more around process and around how you manage a business process to realign incentives and that may sound somewhat trivial but if you if you realign a management incentive within a business to incentivize on carbon emission reduction as well as profitability uh, and square that circle, you you change the behavior of the business and it reorientates towards those new, new incentives. So there are things called shadow carbon pricing that are now being used in businesses to help structure these things. There are a lot of things going on around restructuring product uh, portfolios that businesses and services and uh, how different sort of, you know, again, I've mentioned the supply chains, raw materials, how do you change the nature of farming to to provide much more so, sort of sustainable outputs that are can withstand the you know the change in weather patterns that we're about you know, that we already know is kind of coming through from, from the modeling so i think it is it's a pretty exciting time to 
witness that innovation that has become ultimately, again, we're talking about financing. That is how innovation occurs. It's the financial incentives. And, uh, you know, I'm a great, uh, I'm a great optimist. I, th- I think human ingenuity is fantastic and has and will, ri- will rise to this challenge as it has done to most of the other sort of challenges we've seen in the past several decades and centuries, in fact. So, I, you know, I think climate change can be uh, addressed and managed through with human ingenuity. Great optimist. Can I just ask you perhaps to give us an example of how the work that you've done through the Judge Business School and Resilience has helped corporations think about their futures? And, you know, Roa mentioned modelling and the um, importance of modelling and help, you know, how to help people, guide people through the different parameters that they need to think about. Can you give us an example of this in your work and how that's been able to guide your clients? Great. Yes. Well, without sort of naming names of businesses, they're typically trying to look at the, the next sort of five, 10, 30 year horizons and try and sort of model out, if you like, what the impacts of physical risks, the changing climate and its extreme weather, and the transition risks of how that those changing financial structures and tax incentives and uh, regulatory burdens are going to impact their business. So you sort of try and f- figure that out. The, way we work with them is we, we create a sort of platform and model out their business and then look at how different scenarios of how the climate and transition risk are going to play out. And though that tells them then how that, that impacts their business, their, the increased costs from carbon tax they're going to see or reduced revenues from different uh, loss of market share from consumer behavior, uh, increased cost of capital from, from various things and things they might find. So, so that gives them a diagnostic tool to then develop a net zero plan, which is then the, the investments that you put, put into lower emission operations, changing the, the technology in your factories or the, the vehicles you use for your transportation systems, restructuring your supply chain, perhaps uh, mergers and acquisitions of new parts of your business and you know realigning management incentives to achieve a plan that's going to take 20 years, 30 years for a business to really transform itself to get to net zero. These things are not, not easy to do. You know, it is, it is a major change. And ultimately, we're seeing companies investing, you know, three, four, five percent of their annual earnings in this business. And that's a, a major piece. And, and as we sort of said right at the outset, somebody's got to finance that. They can finance it from some of their own earnings, or, or but they're going to go out to markets uh, for that, and and that's a, I think that's a virtuous circle, and it's it's coming us back to the conversation we began with, which is how do you finance this overall uh, business transformation for the new low carbon economy? That's really interesting. You bring, I mean, nicely to the next question for Owen about time scales. I mean, in my own work, and especially focused on earthquakes, there is this almost luxury of time between big events and, you know, the, the return periods are such that you you can engage with the community and hope that there is appetite. But at the same time, having too much time means that you don't get the attention of the politicians. Right. So I wonder from your experience, but what you're seeing now in the industry room, what kind of sort of timescales are we talking about? Are we already too late? Is the insurance industry and, and the finance industry catching up almost? And, and you know, we are we seeing progress made at the right speed? And how much can we rely on having this time to act? 
Well, we, we don't have much time. I mean, I'm, I'm very pleased that this whole challenge has been reframed as an emergency and that we have this critical climate decade of the 2020s to, to turn things around. Certainly on the, on the resilience and adaptation side, there has been a sea change in perception in the last uh, two or three years. I think, frankly, because some very rich, fashionable parts of the world in the developed north, whether it be Australia, California, obviously continental Europe, uh, UK and Europe, have been struck by you know, a, a range of extreme events. And I think uh, that has woken up sort of mainstream business and policy that this is a, a here and now danger that affects us all, whether you're in a, a small island developing state, uh, perhaps with a developing economy, or, or uh, you know, some of the most uh, perceived to be uh, sophisticated and advanced uh, regions of the world. So, I mean, that has created a sea change. There was uh, one sort of important sort of public-private coalition that's actually as a flagship at, at COP that's called the Coalition for Climate Resilient Investment. It was just come back from a, a major program in, in Jamaica, which has enabled the Jamaican government to understand it, its current and future climate and related risks to its community infrastructure assets, networks, basically to answer, answer the question, if we have a billion dollars to invest over the next 10 years, where best to invest that money for maximum social, economic, and indeed cultural resilience? Because that's what everybody needs to know. And that's sort of happening now. And then that sort of uh, requirement is going to be rolled out very quickly, whether it's national adaptation plans, whether it's uh, government planning and policy, and frankly, whether it's investment. But the other side of it is you've got to go from the macro, which is necessary, to the micro. So at the same time, at an asset level, the same coalition is, is working through how do you get the DNA of climate risk modeling into the, into the DNA of in real asset and infrastructure cash flows? Andrew and I have seen how you do that in the insurance world and catastrophe modeling, you know, literally changed the DNA of the industry. We need to change the DNA of many other sectors to sort of marry macro objectives to make sure that that makes sense on a on an investment by investment basis. But I'm 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 encouraged, Emily, by a recent uptick in sort of progress at the innovation side, and I and I do think the fundamental techniques will be understood as necessary over the next three, four, five years. What I'm more concerned about is how quickly these techniques are adopted and mainstreamed across the economy as a whole, because this isn't really about moving. 100 billion a year, 200 billion a year of green or resilient finance. Actually, what we've got to do is create the rules that all finance structurally has to embrace these mechanisms. And, and I think that's feasible, but we're not quite too late, but we're, you know, it, it is an emergency. Andrew, how do your people you work with look at the, the time scales and ways and what they need to do within these time scales? I think, I think this is probably, yeah, the, one of the biggest sort of disconnects uh, because you know biz businesses tend to be focused on quarterly earnings right so they're they're worried about the next three months they're not and they have you know if you're lucky it's an annual target or a three-year plan and you know frankly our scientific discourse around the year 2100 
is not very helpful in that sort of context. But it is a crisis. Things are changing very rapidly today. Uh, and that is really what businesses tend to pay attention to. They have, they do pay a lot of time on their 20 to 30 year capital investment program. So, so they, they think about that. That's the sort of payback time of a major investment in a new factory or, or some major infrastructure. Uh, so definitely thinking ar- around that. But they're, they're highly motivated by the current change in the uh, opinions, to be honest, of people and customers. And that is changing really as a result of extreme weather patterns. There was a really interesting piece in The Economist a couple of weeks ago about how experience of extreme weather is actually changing the electorate's voting patterns because, uh, to, to favor that. And that's, that, I think, is really interesting, where human behavior is now saying, no, we're going to tackle this. We're prepared to vote with our own wallets about how we think this should happen and make sure that our political representatives are reflecting this in in their agenda. So I think that is a hugely important process. And I'm I'm very encouraged that we're all, you know, we're talking about it in such a, a practical way today about the things that are happening this year. And we're talking about, you know, the next COP coming up and so on. I think it's really, you know, we're thinking about it on a much shorter timeline now uh, than, than has historically been the case. And I think that's how we should continue to press. We're getting to the end of the episode. And I wonder if you could both of you have a think about how, a big question for me, how do we keep this momentum and motivation going? I mean, it, it's great that COP's happening every year and we have a reminder of this every year, but how do you make sure that we don't lose this momentum, all this, these great things that you've talked about that has been built in, in the last year or so? I'll kick off if you like. I, uh, I think there's a lot of potential distractions that can occur in the short term. Uh, you know, there's a lot of things going on. We've got a, an inflationary spike and we've got potential for e- economic sort of short termism that could be really energy security issues that might be sort of apparently trumping the, you know, the, the need for our climate change initiatives. But I think taking that medium term view of that the, there will be jump bikes in, in the economy, but we need to take that view of how is the overall transformation likely to occur and keep that very much on as the primary target of our our conversations. I think people, as I say, I I have great faith in ethical capitalism as a a driving force. And I think people are providing that they see enough information and are looking at the the future in a a structured way. I think we'll see um, behavior that, that really does transform very dramatically over the next several years. No, I think Andrew's right to sort of highlight the potential distractions, but I think I'm, I'm quite encouraged that there's now a kind of critical mass of uh, resources and expertise coming together aligned with uh, changes in financial regulation or other policy requirements that seem to frankly have been pressed forward consistently now globally for the last three or four years and and show no sign of really abating. So I think I'm fundamentally encouraged by that. And and regretfully, I I think that over the coming months and years, if we do begin to forget, I have a nasty feeling that Mother Nature or Anthro Nature will not let us forget. And I have regretfully no doubt that there will be significant punctuation marks that will remind us around the world in the coming year and uh, through the decade, which will mean that increasingly, as Andrew hinted at, 
this becomes a, a higher and higher political issue. So yes, I think we're all committed to be on this case, whether we want to or perhaps whether we don't. Well, thank you to Andrew Coburn, the CEO of Resilience, and to Rowan Douglas, head of the Climate and Resilience Hub at Willis Towers Watson, for being part of this conversation today. It's been fascinating. I, I've certainly have learned a lot, and it's great to be able to make the connections between what we have been doing, as you say, Rome, for, for many years now, to really trying to use that knowledge to inform the future and, and trying to really tackle the risk in, in terms of resilience. So thank you both very much for being with us today. Thanks uh, so much, Emily. Great to be uh, with you and uh, Rob and, uh, and Andrew. Thank you. Yes, thank you. T- totally endorse that. Uh, in a really interesting uh, time. Thank you for your time. This series on science policy and climate resilience is brought to you in partnership with the research project Expertise Under Pressure, part of the Centre for the Humanities and Social Change at the University of Cambridge. To hear more conversations like this, make sure you follow and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn. As always, if you have any feedback or ideas you'd like us to cover in future episodes, please email inquiries at csap.cam.ac.uk. Thanks to our producer, Jessica Foster, and researcher, Nick Kostick. And thank you to you for listening.